0: This was probably the most performed music in America because movie theaters were everywhere and they were performing things every night. And so there was this music written and it was written not just for piano, but for full orchestra. And then the talkies come in and the entire industry collapses overnight.
1: Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebbert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. How the Sausage Gets Made In this episode, I talk to two people doing the nitty-gritty to get silent film releases out to the world. First. Ed LaRusso pioneered the professional-level silent DVD sold via Kickstarter, and his new release, which you can be a part of, is The Cossack Whip with Viola Dana. And Rodney Sauer researches and performs vintage scores for vintage movies. We'll hear him talk about and play a little music from Old Ironsides, a seagoing epic coming out in October from Kino Lorber. So make sure you keep up with Nitrateville Radio from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Thanks. 1916. Tsarist Russia is in the headlines. Petite Viola Dana is a big star for the Edison Company, and her husband John H. Collins is one of the company's top directors. They decide to make a melodrama of Russian iniquity called The Cossack Whip. Like many of their films, it's a hit, and Collins might have gone on to a long career as a major Hollywood name. But just as current events will soon have other news for Tsarist Russia, they will for John H. Collins as well, 100 years ago next month. Nitrateville member Ed LaRusso pioneered the use of Kickstarter to release lesser-known silence from the Library of Congress on DVD, with Marion Davies films like Enchantment and Beauty's Worth. The Cossack Whip is his 11th release, funded and promoted via Kickstarter, and you can be a part of making it happen right now. I spoke with him about it.
2: I just got the video files today, and I haven't even looked at them. But, um, I mean, I've gone through and scanned them, but, but I haven't actually watched the film yet. But.
1: So you, you just went on for this one sight unseen then?
2: Sight unseen. Uh, all of my... Almost all of my Kickstarter's have been sight unseen. Sort of plunged every time. Uh, I think Beauty's Worth may have been may have been the only one that I, I had actually seen before.
1: All right. So uh, then I have to ask a question: Is there anything that you got and you <laughs> and you saw it? and You went, why am I doing this movie?
2: No, actually not. I've been um, extremely lucky. Um, I've relied on people like Ben Modell and Rob Stone to. Sort of uh, ensure that I wasn't getting something that was completely unwatchable. Um, so quality-wise, everything's been pretty good. And I've done a little bit of research up front so that I sort of know what I'm getting into. Sort of. <laughs> uh, of course, you never know, but I, but I've been I've been lucky. Um, you know, this is my eleventh Kickstarter, so um, it's gone well.
1: Okay, so this film, um, I think, didn't, doesn't Kevin Brownlow write about it in one of his books? A little bit. It's
2: been written about. I don't. I'm. I'm sort of surprised that it, apparently it has been shown at uh, festivals here and there. I don't think it's been widely shown. Uh, most people I've talked to about this have never even heard of it. Um, It's not as famous as something like Blue Jeans, which which, uh, Collins did with Viola Dana. Uh, That's a much more famous film. This one, you know, it survives. It's one of the few of theirs that they did together that that actually uh, does survive.
1: So what about this one appealed to you then?
2: Something different. Um, uh, Collins has done some, you know, has a good reputation uh, despite a shortened career. Uh, of course, he died in the, 1918 in the uh, influenza pandemic of that time. Uh, I don't think he was even 30 years old, but he produced something like, he did like 40 films. Uh, he had a, a good reputation. He wasn't necessarily the new Griffith or the new DeMille, but um, he uh, had a solid reputation as a director. And Dana was one of the up-and-coming young actresses of the time so it's a good combination i mean how bad can it be you know and also on the verge of the world war one thing so it was sort of timely the ads of the day basically you know it was one of those ripped from the headlines kind of campaigns um which of course it wasn't really but
1: (laughs) were you interested in viola dana in particular i know your early releases of course were driven by the fact that you wanted to see marion davies early films out there
2: right right well, you know, at this point in uh, time, uh, Marion Davies is done. I mean, there's nothing left, basically, of the public domain films to work on at this point. A uh, little old New York may come become available in January with the new public domain rules, which, of course, that could change at any time anyway but there's there's nothing else to work on. So I mean, I've had to if i if I was going to keep doing this, um, I needed to move on. So uh, move on. I did. having seen Blue jeans, I thought that this was a really interesting uh, pair of people who are not terribly well remembered. if If anybody remembers Viola Dana at this point, it's probably because of the interviews she did with Kevin Brownlow in uh, his Hollywood series. Yeah. yeah. Collins uh, is practically completely forgotten at this point, except by, you know, a handful of people. Because he's been gone for a hundred years—literally a hundred years. Next month, literally a hundred years. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I always liked her. She, you know, I mean, she's typical silent star. I'm sure she's quite short. She's, you know, a petite little thing. Right. But seemed right. to four eleven or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and has an interesting background in that her other sisters became a dance act called the Flugrath Sisters or song and dance. Right. Act. Uh right. And had had fame on their own.
2: Well, and the other interesting thing is that the, the the other sister became Shirley Mason, who and both Shirley and Viola started in silent films very early on as kids they were- you know literally children in films and at this point uh, in nineteen sixteen with the Cossack whip viola she's probably still a teenager, but they were both sort of relatively big stars, maybe not on the the the, this, uh, the same tier with Norma Talmadge and Gloria Swanson, but the, they were they were big stars and they both completely crashed uh, with, with talkies. They both show up in uh, one of the reviews, which one is it? The show of shows. I, I don't know. They have a, a very, very brief act. They come on and say about three lines um, and that's it. They're never seen again.
1: Do you have any idea what she did for the rest of her life? I tried to look that up once, and I don't know.
2: No, I, I mean there are so many of these that they, they basically became married ladies, right? And and just and basically disappeared. They did not return to the, necessarily return to the stage or a vaudeville act or become radio people. I mean, they just you know, disappeared into a private life until Kevin Brownlow sort of. <laughs> stirred the pot and, and found found a bunch of these who had not had literally had not been in the public eye in decades at that point. I mean, kind of like the Louise Brooks right. syndrome, where all of a sudden there are these people and they've they've got perfectly good voices. They look great. Uh, of course, that Hollywood series is what thirty years old at this point. But yeah. I mean, at, at that point, they had been out of the public eye for for many decades. I mean, they weren't all Norma Desmond's de- you know, <laughs> <laughs> desperately waiting for that comeback. You know, I, I don't get that feeling at all about a lot of these, but uh, the, the, the story with Marion Davies and the sisters is that that's, they went into show business, I mean, because the money was good probably compared to, you know, whatever working in an office or something, but it was specifically to find a husband. You know the, the the stage door Johnny with the diamonds and all you know all of that. I mean that was sort of the the the, the goal. It wasn't to have a lifelong career on the stage. Right.
1: Let's talk about doing uh, Kickstarter releases. Where did you? I mean, it's always dangerous to say first about anything to do with silent films, <laughs> but I think you're you were the first um, person to really well, see the- how that could work.
2: I'm probably the first nobody to have done it i mean i think ben i think ben modell did one i think he had been doing this before but that's you know before i sort of entered into the arena uh, and, and at this point everything was just sort of on a dare um i figured well you know i heard about it and and i figured well what the heck So I I did the Kickstarter. This was for Enchantment, and it was 2014. And I figured there's nothing to lose, you know, with the structure of of Kickstarter. If, you know, whatever your goal is, if you don't reach the goal, then, you know, the whole thing just disappears. You know, nobody owes anything, and, you know, it's just an over-and-done thing. And I was just sort of semi-shocked that it actually was successful. Because at that point, I didn't have a blog, you know, I I wasn't, you know, I'm not known at all, you know, I'm other people have done this, but they've got some kind of a background, they've got some kind of a a web of people that they're involved with, right, you know, to help push this kind of a thing. And, you know, I, I didn't have that at that point, but the thing succeeded anyway. And it was because It was a film that had a a little bit of renown partly because of the the whole art deco thing with joseph urban and because marion davies has a a fan base so it made it um and from that point on a dare i was able to license it uh with turner classic movies so that was just sort of another step and you know i became a spot on the map so (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, you say you didn't have any presence, but I would say you had a presence on Nitrateville, which is at least good for, you know, the initial few. I mean, in some right. ways.
2: Well, and at that point, I probably, you know, that many years ago, I probably didn't have that much of a presence even there. You know? <laughs> um, so, and the thing builds. And what I've noticed with, with, you know, after 10 of these, I mean, there are certain certain people who, I mean, they come back. Yeah. You know, like to satisfy customers, you know, it, it's not necessarily that, oh, my God, I'm going to try another one of these and I'm going to I'll have to try to attract, you know, X number of all new people. I mean, the thing does build, um, you know, even on Facebook, I, I, I wasn't really that much into Facebook at that time. I mean, I thought of Facebook as a personal thing, you know, where you, you you know, pictures of birthday parties right. <laughs> and I look what bloomed in my backyard and, you know, that kind of stuff. But once I found the right kinds of connections there, that helps build it as well.
1: So what happens then You you with any of these films? First, you talk to the Library of Congress about what they have and what's available to you, because that's always obviously right. important that you know that you can actually get at the material. Right. And then right. it comes to you in what
2: form? It's changed over time. Back then, what they sent uh, was a collection of humongous video files uh i think enchantment was would have been probably like one per reel where they've scanned it and back then they were sent on an external drive in a format that only worked on a mac <laughs> uh only worked I, the program was pro res i mean with that one i actually had to take it to uh a, a, an archive here in maine a film archive to, to get them to help me to work with the files so that they were to the point where I could actually even see them on my computer. Um, since then, uh, like with the, the Cossack web, now they just they just upload them to something like Dropbox or something like that. So you, get, you still get basically a file per reel. You get the video files video files tend to have the intros real one you know and real one start real 2 end real 2 they're not polished complete files you don't get a movie <laughs> you get the pieces of a movie uh, some of them have the, the tints tint slugs in them instructions where the the tinting where the, where it starts what the color should be They have all those remnants in them because they're they're, they're coming from the original 16 or 35 millimeter film.
1: You've had to do a certain amount of work on a number of these. I mean, they aren't they aren't necessarily perfect in order as they would have been shown back then. Right.
2: When I got the Restless Sex, which was not... I've been lucky also in that several of these films have been already restored. I mean, so they like enchantment or the bride's play They're They're just about as pristine as you could ask for others have been preserved, like the restless sex, but because it wasn't in great condition to begin with, it was not actually preserved. So with that one, when I got it, it was actually uh, there were sections of it that were out of sequence. So I would sit and watch it and it's like, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, and this is another element, and I know Ben has has run into this when he was when he was doing when Nighthood wasn't Flower. there were, there were, were sections of the film that are out of sequence. So you have to actually sit there and it's, it's, it becomes a, a puzzle to figure out, well, what what actually goes where so that this makes sense. I mean, nobody's going to want to watch it if it doesn't make sense. So with the restless sex, the entire final reel was completely out of sequence. With buried treasure, the pirate um, sequence was all scattered through the film, which so it didn't make any sense. So it had to be all reassembled and then placed where it should have been to begin with. So that was a surprise. I mean, you don't expect that. You f- you figure, well, it's the film, and this goes back to the original pieces of the reels of film that the library has and for some reason somewhere along the line the stuff is out of order it's not that oh look this says it's real three and it's really real two it can just be a a two-minute segment of the film embedded in real three that's completely out of place
1: have you also had trouble with titles
2: titles i've had yeah sometimes uh uh, the, the, the typical problems with titles are the if, if that piece of film has been uh, corrupted and you can't read it, and it needs to be redone. Sometimes they just need to be retimed. They flash by in one second. So what, what, what I have to do at that point then is just capture a good image of it and uh, redo it, reinsert it into the film, retime it. Uh, sometimes the the opening credits or closing credits, I mean that kind of thing, that need to be uh, added to the film. And sometimes there are just pieces of, of, like with the restless sex, there were just segments of it that and I just cut out completely because it, you couldn't see anything. They were so bad. So rather than leave that, I just took it out, and you don't lose anything. It's you know a couple seconds of film. But you lo- what you lose is that distraction where all of a sudden the audience is, the, the viewer is going to say, I'm not going to watch this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you you know you try to make it, uh, try to clean it up as as much as you can without actually changing it.
1: Now of course the other part of it is that you build in from the beginning that there will be money to pay someone to do a score for these films. Um, It's often been Ben Modell who's doing the same thing with his own releases, but it's been a variety of different people. And and even you have composed a score, or I guess composed themes that someone else then turned into a full score. Uh, So talk about working with that.
2: Well, again, with the first one, uh, with Enchantment, again, I went in with the lowest possible expectation. All I wanted was a copy of the film all I offered was a dvd and a paper sleeve when the thing took off and i don't remember how much it, it made but I, it made enough money so that it was like oh well gee now i need to try to find somebody to do music that would be nice and donald soson at that point had all had contacted me and it turned out that he had a score for enchantment that he had recorded that he had done for a a festival showing like a decade before but he had the score and he offered to just give me the score so it was like okay fine thanks when i got the score it didn't match the film in that it was 10 minutes i can't remember now if it was 10 minutes shorter or longer so that was another thing then when we had when we were working in Bucksport at the film archive. We had to retime the film to match the music, as opposed to changing the tempo of the music and turning it into you know something from the Chipmunks. Yeah, <laughs> to match to match the film. Uh, so anyway, that one that was total serendipity. That one just I mean just out of the blue. From that point on, with future projects, I just uh, put feelers out and talk to people. David Drazen's done a couple of of them. Um, ben Modell's done a couple. I've done a couple. But that's another really, I think, a really important one. I'm not sure that somebody would say, "Oh, well, if I don't know, I don't know who's doing the music, so I'm not going to donate." I'm not sure it's that you know that kind of a selling point but to just for somebody looking at a Kickstarter campaign to know that there will be a new score for, for the film. I think that's important.
1: You know, I think that's very important. I think it's, it's what separates them from the PD quick and dirty DVDs that people send out, which is sometimes the only way you can see something, but these rise to the level of professional seeming product in part because they have right. the, the same people right. who work on, you know, professional DVDs from name
2: labels. Right. So basically, you know, the bottom line is this becomes a professional product at this point. I don't you know, with the first one, I did all my own. I copied all my own discs. I mean, I did everything myself. (laughs) I've moved on from that point. I you know, really quickly decided, no, I'm not (laughs) I'm not doing this again. You know, I was printing, printing my own uh, DVD covers. I mean, all of that. I farm all of that out now at this point. It's you know it's just I'm I'm too old to do yeah. <laughs> to be doing all that kind of stuff at, at this point by myself. So basically, it becomes at this point it is even though it's very limited in that there may only be 150 of these made. It's still basically a professional product with with a, with a, a real music score instead of some generic piece of you know something tacked on. Uh, with a disc that's made at a real you know, duplicator with a menu, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it has evolved. I mean, at this point, I, you know, I've, I, the last, what, three, four, five, I've added sh- a short film, you know, as a, as a bonus t- to these. I've done, I've, I've done somewhere I've gone through and done, uh, theme tinting and offered that as, a, as a, an alternate on, on the disc along with the black and white. So, I mean, I, I it's been an amazing journey for me just to have learned how to do all these things over the last four years.
1: And then there's TCM, which, you know, that's that's like, that's what makes it really professional is, wow, a real network picked pick right. this up. Tell me about how that right. came about.
2: Well, again, I think there was there was somebody who I won't name who basically said, who nagged at me for months, why don't you contact... TCM. And this was for enchantment. Why don't you contact TCM? And it's like, they don't know who I am. I don't know how to do this. You know, I have no background in this. So finally, just to to shut this person up, I went ahead and I I, uh, found the contact. And, you know, within a week we had, we had a a deal. They snapped it up. Uh, That was enchantment. And that was, Aired in November of 2014, so that sort of brought the whole thing f- full circle from from being a film someplace in an archive that basically nobody had seen to all of a sudden uh, having a, a limited DVD release and then being shown on on Turner Classic Movies and introduced by Robert Osborne. I guess that's the the the, the high point of of where a project like this can be. You know where it can go to to get that kind of exposure and acceptance, you know validation.
1: Well, and I think it really is, uh, as you say, you went if the film goes from complete inaccessibility to complete accessibility. Um, right. That everyone everyone has the ability you know, access to it at that point. And that's what we all hope for. I mean that's the best
2: right. That's right. the
1: best outcome right. for and, <laughs> for these things.
2: Right. And since then and then I, I was able to sell uh license, I guess that's the, the term the real term, uh Ducks and Drake's the bb B Daniels film that I did and also The Brides Play. And so those both aired 2017, I think, a year ago when they did a Marion Davies Summer Under the S- Under the Stars salute kind of a thing. And uh, just in the last month, licensed uh, Beauty's Worth. So that will show up sometime next year. And that's another one that had been around for ages in a really lousy print. Probably I think it was maybe a video brewery print from the 70s or 80s that we worked on and retimed, and um, got a really nice print out of the uh, Library of Congress. Several of these have, were picked up by Ben Modell for his Undercrank Productions. Uh, Grapevine has come out. Uh, they just came out with Enchantments about a month ago in, on Blu-ray. Beauty's Worth, you know, which again has been around all of a sudden, um, it, it's being shown at festivals in Italy this summer in celebration of robert vignola the director Uh, was shown in trevino in august uh, with a live orchestra and it's being shown as a pre-opening event at portinone in october this year
1: so i would say that uh it sounds like you would recommend other people do that except other people have already done it they've they've followed your example
2: several interesting projects just in the last year for people who I think, uh, it was their maiden voyages on this, whether they will ever do it again. I mean, some people may have where they just have one film that they want to, to do. Um, it's so much depends on the source material, you know, as to how much work is involved (laughs) in these. Some of them are relatively easy. You don't really need to do a lot the film you know like something like uh, like the bride's play it's it's because it's been re- already restored by library of congress it's basically a done deal you just basically have to get the music and put it together others require a ton of you know a, a a ton of work but you don't necessarily know that or at least I don't because I haven't been to the library of congress to sit and watch the film and say, "Oh okay, this is a good one. I can do this, and of course, most people would do that. <laughs> they would actually go there because you can you can watch these films on site and then make a decision from there. I just haven't done that.
1: What are you thinking about for future ones? is there any is there any star that you feel uh, as much affection for as Marion Davies that you'd like to no no <laughs> the one and only.
2: Well, you know, there, there are others, but the thing that you run into, of course, is the, 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 the bugaboo of public domain, which may move up to 1923 in January. So there may be a whole new trove of films now that will fall into the public domain uh, unless they change the law between now and then. Most of the Marion Davies MGM silence, like The Cardboard Lover and Beverly of Graustark. I mean, Lights of Old Broadway, all of these films, Library of Congress has them all, but they're not in the public domain. And Warner's owns them, and they're probably just not going to ever do anything with them. It's just too much work up front for, for a big company like that, and then to hire, you know, do the music, blah, 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 and then to try to get anything out of it to make a profit. But, you know, so, you know, there still are Davies films There, they you know, one may become available um, in January that I'm going to try to jump on um, it, because it will fall in the public domain. But, you know, there's still a, there's still a ton of stuff there. You know, I mean, but, but you reach the reached the point where, you know, uh, you know, if I if, you know, here's a film, it looks interesting to me but the star is Constance Binney. Who in hell is going to fund this? I mean, you know, that would be really pushing it because you don't have a marquee name. You know, and I think that's still basically what drives the Kickstarter thing. You've got to have that, you know, it's a Frank Borzaghi film, early film, or, you know, uh, you know, or a star name to, to to push it. You know, maybe these things will come out at some point because they're there you know they still have tons of films but it also needs more people to do it
1: Kickstarter for the Cossack Whip runs through October 5th. Links for it and others of Ed's releases now available through Undercrank Productions or Grapevine Video will be in the show post at Nitrateville.com. Hey, if you like this podcast, there's something you can do to help it. Help others discover Nitrateville Radio by going to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, logging in, and leaving us a review and a rating. That makes us more visible to people looking for other old movie podcasts and builds our audience, which means more people know about and buy the stuff you like, which means more of it gets made. So please, do that today and help us all out. Thanks. Old Ironsides was Paramount and director James Cruz's 1926 attempt to do for the Navy what their epic western The Covered Wagon did for the Pioneers. As it turned out, it wasn't a big hit, but it's an exciting, rousing sea adventure. And befitting its ambition, it had something that was unusual for silent films. A complete score from beginning to end, written by Hugo Riesenfeld and J.S. Samichnik. Nitrateville member Rodney Sauer leads the Mont-Alto Motion Picture Orchestra, which accompanies silent films using the vintage music he researches and collects. They're one of my favorite silent film accompanists, and in fact I've had them all to my house for barbecue when they've played in Chicago. That's a standing invitation for silent film accompanists. When Old Ironsides comes out on video from Kino Lorber in October, in a 2K restoration from 35mm material at the Library of Congress, Rodney will be the one playing a piano version of the Riesenfeld and Zomichnik score, which is what you've been listening to. So we talked about rescuing and arranging that score for video release.
0: So what have you been up to? Well, we've been uh, pretty busy with some things. Um, we did a bunch of scores at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. Um, so we keep getting commissioned for uh, new things, a couple of films a year usually. So, And we've got something new for uh, December in San Francisco. I'm not sure I'm supposed to announce that yet, but okay. um, we'll have one new and one revival. It's a, a revival for us. We haven't actually done it at San Francisco before, but we're, I'm looking forward to that. And then um, as far as recordings go, uh, there was this uh, old Ironsides project that I uh, had a lot of fun with, and then, um, and that, that was unusual for two reasons. One, it's a, a piano solo score, and two, it is probably more than anything I've done an attempt to recreate the, um, the New York Premiere score from... Um, from what survives of that, which is actually fairly extensive. And then, yeah, we're, 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 we just got finished recording tracks for uh, the milestone upcoming release of Philibus the Mysterious Air Pirate, which is this way off the wall 1915 Italian movie about a villainess who commits crimes from a, um, a dirigible that she flies around.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a hoot. I mean, it sounds like both Fouillade and Pearl White all
0: in one. Yes, yes, sort of combined with Miyazaki. I keep thinking of the, <laughs> the air pirates and Howell's moving castle. And it's like, yeah, this is this is the uh it is unlike anything I've seen before. But yes, it is it is uh, a an outgrowth of the Fuyad idea.
1: Well let's talk about Old Ironsides. Um this was a big epic production for Paramount in nineteen twenty six. Uh Kino is releasing it, and it was the kind of thing that, you know, supposedly every young man who was working on the Paramount lot can be seen, you know, climbing the mizzen mast or something in it. Uh, although I've never spotted like Gary Cooper or various people like that. Um, big production, not a big hit, as it turns out.
0: Oh yeah, I, actually, I'm not. I, I'm not an expert on on how it did. I, there will be a commentary track on the release by someone who knows more than I do about the film itself. I can definitely tell you about what I see in the film and uh, about the music. Um, and it was it was part of a series that uh, Hugo Riesenfeld, I think, started doing these uh, big scores for the New York premieres of Paramount films. So we have this one. Uh, We have the lost film uh, Rough Riders, and then it goes on through Wings and A.B.'s Irish Rose. Um, And J.S. Zameshnik, who's a composer I've always been interested in, kind of takes over the the work that Riesenfeld was doing. But at this point, they were sort of sharing credit.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about first about how you typically play for a film. There are a lot of different ways that people accompany silent films. Uh, some guys just have a repertoire of themes in their heads that they noodle out as the scene demands. Um, but you work in a different way. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, so the... Improvised version. Um, you know there, there are really three techniques for scoring films, um, and you can combine them in different ways. But one is composing music from scratch, um, and that is something Carl Davis uh, has has done quite successfully, and was done some during the silent era, but it wasn't that common because there wasn't usually time for it. Then there's improvisation. And that uh, came up during the silent film era. Improvisation was less common then than it is now, partly because it wasn't part of your training as a musician to know how to improvise. And then there's the compilation score. And the compilation score is you take music that's already been written and you look at the film and you pick a piece and you play it. And that was incredibly efficient. And so it was really how this was done in most movie theaters in America. At least once you get past... Um, the smallest theaters that might have had a single pianist who could improvise. By the time you get up to a, a a larger orchestra, it's very difficult to improvise because you all have to agree what you're going to play. So in that in that instance, you um you typically look at at your music library and you pull out things and you know you've got a storm scene, so you look through music through for storm music and it's like oh I haven't used this one before, let's try this one out, and so. Um, that's what I, the Mod Alto Orchestra specializes in that because we do have a large collection of that orchestrated music and a lot of it's very good and it's not used that much. So, uh, it, it is a bit fresh to modern audiences. Uh, if you listen to this score for old Ironsides and you've also heard some scores by the Mod Alto Orchestra, you will almost certainly recognize a few themes that have come back because, uh, that's basically how it worked in those days. You would hear the pieces, um, you know, in multiple film scores. And that was just the way it was. And you accepted that as part of the art.
1: But you're trying not to play hearts and flowers for every love scene.
0: No, not for every love scene. Although sometimes you do. Um, In in Marion Davis film, uh, show people, they they actually call for hearts and flowers. And you see a very in 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 uh, close up focus of the violinist playing hearts and flowers. So there's a scene where you would have to use it. But yes, if you went to a local neighborhood theater and there was a woman who playing the piano and what she knew was Hearts and Flowers, then you would likely hear that.
1: Right. Well, we am just kind by of show people. I mean, uh, it's it's tongue in cheek. They're talking. Yes. They're playing it as a cliche.
0: Yes, but they are making fun of a real thing, which was that if you went to some theaters, you would hear the same love theme for every film. And actually, some people who were, you know, maybe they weren't um, the most Uh, musically sophisticated audiences, they would actually get used to that. It was like, you know, when you turn on the, the TV to watch your favorite TV show and the theme song comes on, it's like, yeah, okay, that's the theme song for for movies and and back in the day i imagine there was a certain amount of oh there's the love theme this must be our our hero um there's the villain theme this must be our villain and so people probably were used to that and, uh, and it it was something that that tended to disappear though you do i think still see it on television
1: well and it's funny you mentioned series tv and of course that's the way series tv was scored as well it's not like someone wrote a score for every episode of you know manix or something but mm-hmm. there was a library of you know chase music and right. rising yeah. tension music and stuff like that Yeah
0: and, and even later on it's like you know Seinfeld there's that that bass hit you hear and and so yeah the, the the recurring themes and and I think that back in the silent film days um if we went back and actually listened to a theater um you know we would probably be disappointed in some of the things we heard but it would be uh it would be heartfelt
1: Yeah all right, so but it sounds like uh, Old Ironsides is a bit different from that. So tell me about that.
0: Certainly. So there usually wasn't time to write a whole new score for these, and you know, m- m- budget may have been an issue. I'm not sure about that. But what they tried to do was they would write what um, it, there's a. If you're curious about this, uh, J.S. Zamiesnik, when he was when Wings opened, had an interview with the Metronome magazine, and I've got this up on our website. But it is int- he talks about his process in writing these films. And this old Ironsides was a couple of years earlier, so this is what he's getting into it. So the highlight of music to most classical musicians was then was this Wagnerian idea of the leitmotif. And you would write character themes for the main characters in a story. And when they appear on screen, you do your best to throw a little bit of that music up. And that is all through Old Ironsides. Um, it's also all through Wings. And if you, if you obtain the most recent release of Wings on DVD and Blu-ray, um, that is a, a brilliant example of a score from this era. And they've done a wonderful job of orchestrating it using modern Hollywood techniques. But you can still hear this, this musical theme in wings as a matter of fact he boils it down he's got the character theme for one of the characters is this simple and if you hear that that's uh Charles Buddy Rogers on screen and when Richard Arland is on screen it's and it can be a, a a scene where the where the 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 movie is cutting from one character to another, and he'll he'll follow it in the in the score quite closely. Um, he's doing that in Old Ironsides. There's even more themes in this one because there are more characters. So he's got a main character theme for uh, for Charles Farrell. Um, interestingly, the musicians are obviously familiar with Wallace Berry and George Bancroft because in the score they they write down what you're watching on the screen, and whenever Beery and Bancroft show up, they're identified as Beery and Bancroft. Um, Charles Farrell and um, Esther Ralston show up as boy and girl in the score. So <laughs> they did not count on people being able to know them by sight. Um, so we've got a boy theme, a girl theme. We've got uh, you know, a theme for Wallace Beery. There's a couple of other people who just show up a couple times and they end up with with themes in the music. And so there are a couple of passages where uh, you're watching these characters and the music is following them very closely. So that's the composed part of the score. And then you get into parts that are more compiled where, especially the battle sequences, it's hard to write battle music. There's a lot of arranging that needs to be done. So there they would tend to go to the classics, to you know, music that maybe even Zameshnik had written himself a while back. Um, you know, some of his battle music, and just throw that in. So then you get a long passage of the movie where you don't actually get any character themes because they're borrowing from other uh, places.
1: One of the bits of, you know, conventional wisdom with sound movie scores is that Max Steiner basically invented using leitmotifs for King Kong, which he did as far as pre-recorded scores, I guess, but it doesn't sound like, I mean, even to the extent that it's something borrowed from Wagner, it's borrowed along the way, apparently from silent film scoring.
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, I, I can play a few of the things. Here's the, the theme for the ship itself. So old, I, I, I should add that at least two of the pieces that were composed for old Ironsides were released as sheet music. And one is the old Ironsides March, which is by Hugo Riesenfeld. And the other is the love theme called your love is all, um, that was written by J.S. Zamishnik, and those definitely are shown. You know, they show up in the score, and they're they're used quite heavily because the idea was once you left the theater, you'd be humming these themes, and you would go and buy the sheet music. So here's the here's the ship itself. That's about 16 bars. The march goes on longer and different parts of it are used in different places, but that often comes up. At the beginning, when the ship is launched, you get that. Um, when uh, Charles Farrell sees a poster for the ship, that will show up. So the ship has its own little character theme. Um, Wallace Berry and George Bancroft, the, the themes were written to be short and quotable in a way, by which I mean that You know, whenever Wallace Berry is whistling on screen, which he does a couple of times, we we hear a little bit of his theme. His theme is like this. This apparently was, uh, according to the score, was written by Zamaschnik. So it's got a kind of a sailor's hornpipe feel to it. Beery is is uh, the bosun of the the, sh- the ship that's not the Old Ironsides, which actually is what's on on screen most of the film. the 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 Old Ironsides only shows up in the second half. The first half is kind of a love story set on a different ship. So there's Wallace Beery, and then George B- Bancroft, who's a gunner who has um, abandoned Old Ironsides, and. Uh, it's a little unclear uh, how he, he gets back, but he, he shows up and he he has this sort of comic relief relationship with Wallace Bury during most of the movie. And his theme goes. And so, again, pretty short, not a lot to it. But when you see him, they can just quote. And again, if you play close attention to the score, there's there's a lot of that in there. And then just to round them out. There's a gorgeous theme for Charles Farrell, and there's a, a kind of an interesting story behind this one. Um, it's identified as being a piece called Three Irish Pictures. Listen to this. And wistful, um, I was there's one spot. Okay, the, the the score that I've got is a microfilm from the Library of Congress. And it is all handwritten. It's a lot more roughly done than the polished publications that were done for most um photoplay music at the time. And there's a spot where I thought it, it sounded like there's a bar missing. And this is the kind of typo you come across in this music a lot of the time, because there wasn't a second ed- edition where they corrected anything. And so Um, I thought, well, maybe I have this, the original. So I looked it up, uh, three Irish pictures, and sure enough, it was in my my collection of music, Um, and I dug it out, and it turns out it's like a totally different piece. This is what it sounds like in the original. So what Hugo Riesenfeld has done is taken that, which is very marchy, And he's turned it into a very lyrical 6-8, almost Mm -hmm. Irish ballad. Um, And so he does not take credit for having completely rearranged that piece, but it, it varies. And as a matter of fact, the fast bit shows up later when Charles Farrell is becoming a good sailor and is climbing around on the on the boat and achieving, um, recognition as a, as a good sailor. So it, the music can go back and forth. So he must've given that piece some thought and said, you know what I can do with this is I can make it sound very wistful when he's leaving home to go out and find his fortune. But then when he, uh, when he becomes more of a, a mensch, we'll, uh, will go back to the original as it was written.
1: Okay. So I want to go in, go a little deeper on something here, which is you say, I just looked to see if I had it as if, you know there was a stack of uh, of sheet music, uh, kind of mixed in with some New Yorker magazines on a table somewhere. But you actually have a massive collection of uh, Zemechnik's music in particular. So tell me about that for a bit.
0: Yeah. So the way I got started doing this, uh, I did not know that there was such a thing as silent film music. Most people don't. You can get a um, you know you can get a, a music education in America. and You'll learn about uh, various composers and you'll learn about jazz. This was actually a really big deal for about 15 years. This was probably the most performed music in America because movie theaters were everywhere and they were performing things every night. And so there was this music written and it was written not just for piano, but for full orchestra. And then the talkies come in and the entire industry collapses overnight. And those who are smart, um, like Zamaschnik, move out to L.A. and then work their way into the studio system because that's now going to be the only place that film music happens Um, but during that time, a lot of this music was published. A lot of it was thrown away in 1929 because it was not needed, but there were people who had been working on this their whole lives. They did not see the end of their career coming. Um, so they had this big collection either at the theater or in their basement in some cases. And one of these guys kept it his entire life. And when he passed away, his wife, uh, gave it to the university of Colorado. And I just happened to be looking for dance music at the time and someone said oh this big collection was just given to the University of Colorado you might go look at it and they were so nice they let me go through it um, they let me copy anything I wanted and it it really only took a couple of visits to realize you know this is all film music this is how this was done we could do this and to put together a score um, and then I got um, you know this it, people really enjoyed the films that were done this way so I got better at it and I also started looking elsewhere in the In the time since then, I've had two or three different collections pass through my hands. What I usually do is I tell people, if you donate this to the University of Colorado, you can get a nice tax write-off. But in the meantime, why don't you let me catalog it for you and photocopy anything I want? And so uh, several people have been willing to do that. And then most recently, I acquired actually from Robert Israel, who also does this kind of work, um, his collection, which belonged to the Grauman theater chain. And that is in fact where I found the three Irish pictures was in that collection. So this is now sitting in my house in about 70 large boxes, each box containing about a hundred folders, each folder containing a complete orchestration, usually several copies of it. So we've got the piano part, we've got the violin part, the clarinets, you know, the, the, all, all you would need for about a 40 piece orchestra. Um, It turns out this music is very scalable. So even though the music was written for a large orchestra, it was also written with having in mind you might only have three people in your orchestra at a particular theater, or you might have seven people, or you might have 12 people. And it was all orchestrated in a way that makes it flexible for that. So if you've heard the Mod Alto Orchestra, what you're almost always hearing is a five-piece group playing these large orchestrations, but they're arranged in a way that with a five-piece group you can make it sound big. With Old Ironsides, I realized there was enough original music in this that it would have taken a vast amount of studio time to record the whole thing for the five-piece orchestra because it's a two-hour movie and almost none of the music is repeated. So we really would have been spending weeks in the studio, and I really couldn't afford to do that. So what I decided to do was I, I could go either of two ways. I could just play it on piano, in which case it's only my own time that matters, and I'm yeah. pretty quick at recording <laughs> things. So, um, And then I could do it exactly as written. Or I could simplify it and say, okay, we've got five different pieces of battle music. How about I record two of them and I'll just use those. And that didn't appeal to me as much this time. So, um, so I decided to go with the, the piano. I also had uh, recorded a bunch of percussion effects for an earlier film uh, with a drummer. And so I borrowed those uh, and repurposed them for this film because there's a lot of cannon fire in this film and explosions. The battle scenes go on for quite a while. And so I've, I've added uh, percussion that way. But again, that was me mostly working around digitally and saying, oh, look, here's a cannon shot. Let's line this hit up with that cannon shot. And so uh, I think that adds a bit of excitement to those uh, those scenes.
1: Let me ask about something, too, uh, a piece of music that must turn up at the end or some point, which is this is about the battle against the Pirates of Tripoli. So it is what's in the Marine Corps uh, song To the shores of Tripoli. Does that end up in the score at all? Oh yes. Oh yes.
0: The, the the film, I think one of its possible flaws, um, I mean, the spectacle is undeniable. They built an entire fortress somewhere on Catalina Island. And based on the headlands in the background, I bet you could figure out where it is because it's kind of significant. I just haven't been to Catalina since I started working on this. John Bankston on
1: it.
0: Yeah, well, exactly. Send, (laughs) send John Bankston to Catalina. Um, and, uh, you know, all this big stuff. The, one of the flaws is it takes a very gung ho sort of, um, what you might think of as an elementary school, uh, patriotism. There's, there's a bit of jingoism in this film. And so the Marines are very much heroes. Um, Stephen Decatur is very much a hero, and I'm not saying they weren't heroes in real life, but they come across almost a little artificial. A, a little bit too goody-goody, and so it's a little hard to get into them sometimes. Stephen Decatur is always in his officer's uniform, even when he's doing a raid, and you have to wonder: Did he keep that hat on? And he might have. I mean, this is we're we're, we're thinking about you know the age of uh, of you know Captain Aubrey and 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 all of that and so there is some of that in the film but yes uh, i i was amused by the patriotic music partly because you have to think the marines hymn must have been written after this event if sure. it's going to mention this event <laughs> um and there's a couple of others there's even a quote early on um of Dixie, which is way out of line. Um, Fortunately, um, one thing I should say is that I did not use the score strictly as written because it doesn't quite fit the film. So that tells me that our surviving print of the film, it's pretty close to what was shown in New York, but there have been some cuts made um, since then in what survives now. And I don't think we lost anything great, but I was able to cut out the three bars that quotes Dixie without actually leaving any holes <laughs> in the score. Um, but there's, I think, there's a little bit of uh, of, of the Star Spangled Banner that shows up, and again, that's you know, the Star Spangled Banner is about the War of 1812, and we're actually about nine or ten years earlier than that in the action of this film. Um, and there's a hornpipe that shows up that I was amused by. Uh, there, one of the things that was interesting is there's a an early on. As Charles Farrell is getting used to the ship, there's a squall, and they have to quickly go up and reef the sails. And I would have just naturally scored that with storm music. Um, Reason felt goes a completely different direction and scores it with sailors' hornpipes. So it's rather cheerful music. It's very perky. It's very fast, but it's not threatening. And I think his point was: this is what you do on ships. This is not, um, you know, this is not. The, the highlight of the film, this is just showing sailors doing what they do. And so we're going to play sailor music. And one of the one of the sailors hornpipes that's chosen is one that I happen to know. It's called Hull's Victory. And Hull was the captain of the USS Constitution later on during the War of 1812 when it captured three or four uh, British ships. During that war. So again, uh, this hornpipe is named after the ship that shows up in the film. But again, it's na- based on an action that happened ten or twelve years later. And this is, you know, this is really deep inside pool. I did not feel this had to be fixed <laughs> for historical accuracy. What we're looking at now is the historical accuracy of this film score, not whether this film score is <laughs> accurate to the time that we're showing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's movie history. Well, yeah, as long as it doesn't break into uh, anchors away or. Oh, how I hate to get it up in the morning or something like
0: that. Although there are a couple of places where it kind of inexplicably goes into what I would think of as popular music of of the 1920s. Um, And again, maybe they just had this music lying around and they thought, um, okay, we just need some filler music. Um, Maybe I'll play a little example of that. This is a bit on the sailing ship as they're approaching uh, the Mediterranean, and it's just sort of white comedy going on in the background. And we get this thing that sounds like a 1920s foxtrot. not what i would put in a, a movie of the you know that's set in the 1800s i wouldn't be shy about putting music that was written after that but i wouldn't look for things that sound like they're in a different style
2: yeah,
1: yeah.
0: there's also kind of an almost ragtimey piece that takes place in a in a scene early on where they're at a, sh- a dockside tavern in uh in Salem. Um, And it has a similar feel where I looked at that and said, oh, okay. Um, But again, this is, I'm being a little more historical here than I I often am. So I decided, you know, we'll just go ahead and use that.
1: Well, Um, on some level, any original music is from its time, even if it doesn't feel like it's from its time. So, I mean, you just look at it differently now, you know, at some point to some later date, it's going to sound like your time, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And it's also, I think more difficult with silent film music, than with later music, because, uh, you know, if you're going to be doing a story set in Mozart's time and only use Mozart, Mozart wrote great music, but it's not film music. And so there are going to be scenes that you need music for that you're not going to find stuff in the repertoire that's 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 right for it. Um, and I've come across this before of, of you know, the, trying to do Robin Hood with only med- medieval music. Uh, you know, the medieval music that survives is mostly dance music. So any scene that's not a dance, you're going to have to really stretch to find music that fits. Um, and even things like when we scored Birth of a Nation for Kino, I was trying originally to only use music that had been published, you know, for by the time of 1914, 1915. And most of the good battle music from the silent film repertoire had not been pushed published yet. So it. I I eventually broke my own rule and decided, you know what, we're gonna go and pretend this was the revival in nineteen twenty-three in New York City and we're not just gonna use Wagner for all of the battle scenes because <laughs> in nineteen fifteen that's all you could find. Because we're we're gonna look at, at all of the useful music that was written um, you know, with this in mind, and it will it will have a more satisfying and emotional quality to it.
1: Well, and also it's just things become cliches by a certain point. I mean, you know, Ride right of the Valkyries Conjures up either Bugs Bunny or helicopters in Vietnam at this point. <laughs> right. So
0: Yes. Yes, and 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 I, I've come across Ride of the Valkyries in several silent film cue sheets. You know, the the Birth of a Nation is famous, but it it also shows up in Thief of Baghdad and some other cue sheets. And again, usually when I see that I think we've got music that would work for this that is not going to distract people out of the film and make them think about something else. But in Old Ironsides, you are definitely going to hear some patriotic music. Uh, there is one interesting thing that I came across. This sort of might fall under the category of a joke that takes too long to explain for it to be funny. But I <laughs> really I really kind of enjoyed this. So um, we are now in the second half of the film. Uh, we have some people who are captive in the fort in Tripoli, the Algerian fort. And the Americans, led by Stephen Decatur, are going to come and raid uh, the the harbor. I don't need to th- do any spoilers here. As they're coming into town, or as they're coming in and, and tying up to the ship that they're attacking, we get this little cue. If you're paying attention, you heard a little bit of Yankee Doodle in there. OK, now suddenly the, they attack the ship. Uh, it puts in a piece called Orgies of the Spirits. And this is a lovely big Russian piece that reminds me a little bit of Night on Bald Mountain and that kind of thing. It was used extensively I don't think anyone's actually recorded it we recorded parts of it for our score for destiny way back when we scored that for David Shepard but it starts with this piece this is not the beginning of orgies of the spirits so he's starting it in the middle and this is how um, Ilinsky originally wrote it um I don't think I got that right what? What Riesenfeld does is he changes one note in that little lick so that it becomes Yankee Doodle. <laughs> and when I first saw that, I thought, oh, my God, it looks like he made a typo. And then I realized, No. He, he, he made it very clear by putting Yankee Doodle in the previous musical cue that this is actually intentional, that he's going to make Yankee Doodle happen there. Um, the Origins of the Spirits section goes on for a long time, and so I recorded it, and it was too long for what remains in the film, and I was trying to line it up. And then I realized he ad- actually added some more Yankee Doodle in the middle of it, and there's a scene where people on the shore are looking and seeing the explosions, and they say, hey, that's us Yankees. And so I thought, okay, there's a there's a, a a place where I can synchronize this. That must happen at the spot where um, where that title comes up. We're going to put in the little quote of Yankee Doodle again. And so that's the kind of clues I'm looking for in this score, um, in those places where I'm having trouble synchronizing the 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 score to the film.
1: Is there anything that you learned out of this that you hadn't done before? Or, I mean, this is a different kind of score for the, these kinds of films you don't usually get something that's as as complete from beginning to end. So anything that you got from it being that?
0: Yeah, I think what what we see from this score is, first of all, this idea of the leitmotif was very important to the New York uh, people, at least, who were doing these scores. Um, The fact that this was published for Full Orchestra at all shows that they had hopes that this score would be picked up elsewhere. Um, I have not seen a lot of evidence that that happened because – People who worked in smaller theaters outside of New York, um, they they already had a technique of how to put together scores for films and they would pick pieces that they knew. And so to get an entirely new score like this and have to rehearse your orchestra and then it might play for a week and it goes off and you can never use that music again, I think was not particularly attractive as a business model. And so um, it was clear that this was a prestige production. I wouldn't be surprised if they lost money on the music part of it. But again, if you're running a big theater in New York City, part of your appeal is the grandeur of what you're doing, and the grandeur includes includes doing scores like this one, doing scores for Wings, and so on. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is seeing how, um, how closely it is scored to the film. There were some places where I would get a character theme in the middle of a long piece and I would look at it and I could not figure out how to line this piece up so that that character theme falls on a shot of that character. And so that shows that at times the film, either you know, during its run or during some later point, um, lost some scenes. And now we just have to do the best we can to line up what survives of the music with what survives of the film. Uh, I think it was well worth doing. I think it's a very exciting score. Uh, I think it's a good score. It has a lot of memorable music in it. And it also makes me think about films like, uh, like the rough riders where a complete score like this was written and there's really no use for it (laughs) because the film doesn't survive. So it is kind of this lost uh, orphaned piece of art. Um, and so I was very glad that, uh, Kino was, and, and Brett Wood were supportive of me, uh, doing this. And I'm very glad that the Library of Congress kept, you know, kept a hold of this. So if anybody wants to do this with a larger score, um, I was working from a piano reduction, which is where you take all of the music and you put it, you condense it down to a piano staff so that a pianist or an organist can play it. But the, uh, full strings, um, flute, clarinet, oboe, bassoon, and then trumpets and trombone, all of these parts also survive. And so it would be possible to recreate this with a larger orchestra if if an opportunity arises.
1: Gold Ironsides will be out on Blu-ray and DVD from Kino Lorber on October 30th. We'll have links for pre-orders in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Ed LaRusso and Rodney Sauer. Theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. We'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. Thanks.